Well, uh, would you please uh, turn in your copy of Scripture this morning to 1 Peter. We're going to be back in our study together of 1 Peter. I want to say I'm so grateful to, to Oscar for leading us so beautifully last week and looking forward to getting back here into 1 Peter. If we haven't met yet, uh, my name is Andy. I'm, I'm one of the pastors here, and I, I consider it a great privilege to get to open up God's Word together with you this morning. Well... Uh, Christy and I had a great week. Uh, we watched our boys suffer through two-a-day practices for their first uh, week of basketball practice. No, I don't like watching my kids suffer, but but I love basketball. I love watching the kids. One of our sons is playing on the team there from Marshfield. The other is a student assistant coach. And and one of the realities about high school sports is these these two-a-day practices are pretty grueling. Uh, they're up early. They're they're there late, and and a lot of physical and mental demand in those things. And 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 these two-a-day practices have been a typical high school experience for for years. In fact, I think of my own high school experience playing football, and we would get up early and have this two-and-a-half-hour two practice in the heat uh, in August. It did get hot up in North Dakota, where I'm from. Uh, I'm here to testify to that. And, and we go home, and you get, you get stiff you know, and, and, and tired, and then you had to go back in the afternoon. You could barely walk, and you had blisters on your feet because the shoes weren't very good in those days, and, and you got to do it all over again. It was grueling. It was tough. Now... If you ask a good coach, uh, uh, the coach can give you several reasons why two-a-days are important, right? They, they can talk about, you know, skills training. They can talk about the schemes they want to implement, whether it's in football or basketball or soccer or, or whatever. Uh, and, and the X's and O's matter. They'll, they'll tell you that. But a good coach will tell you two-a-days go far beyond that. They're not just limited to X's and O's. See, inevitably, through the course of a season, the athletes are going to run into situations where, where the physical and mental demands on them seem greater than what they have the capacity to fulfill. They're pressed hard. And they have to decide, am I going to keep in this battle? Am I going to keep working towards the goal? Or, or am I going to back off? Am I going to quit? And it's in those moments that the two-a-days really begin to prove their value. See, ideally, when, when the going gets tough, they... They've been there before. <laughs> they, they've suffered with their teammates. They, they've learned how to pick each other up. And, and the idea is that if they can overcome the adversity that they experience in two-a-day practices, then they can overcome all kinds of other adversity throughout the season. Now, it strikes me, uh, our faith journey, I, I think, has many parallels. Okay? There's a lot of parallels in our faith journey to what, what these kids experience in sports. See, as we seek to live out our faith, God is a master coach. Amen? God is a master coach who, who uses all kinds of experiences to prepare us for the life to which he's called us. And in the, in the middle of the exercises, it can be tough. It can be tough to keep our perspective. We, we can be tired. We can be bruised. Our emotions sometimes get frayed. And sometimes we desperately need perspective. Do you ever get there? <laughs> Anybody ever need any perspective? I think what we just did was perspective giving, wasn't it? There's a lot of good things that the Lord is doing. Sometimes we need perspective for our trials. And praise God, uh, Peter has a message for us who are in that camp today. Now, before we read it, I, I want to remind us briefly of where we've been here in the first couple of weeks in our study in the book of 1 Peter. See, uh, Peter is addressing the elect exiles of the dispersion. The, these are men and women. These are largely Gentile Christians, perhaps some Jews there as well, who have been dispersed out into the far reaches of Turkey by Emperor Claudius. They're, they're living in a new place, not welcome, right? They're, 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 they're not desiring to do that. They're being forced to. And, and here they are wondering, how do we make sense of all that's going on? 
And Peter reminds them. He says, look, guys, the first thing you need to do is you need to be who you are, not where you are. You need to live out of your sense of identity in Christ. This is who God has made you to be, who he's recreated you to be in Christ. Live out of that. And then remember the hope that you have. You have a heritage. You, you have a, a, a promise that will not spoil or fade. God is going to be merciful to you. In fact, he is merciful to you. And, and you're being prepared for a salvation that's going to blow your minds. So, so have hope in that. Now, that was the first couple of sections in the book of 1 Peter. Today, uh, Peter brings us to an additional reality, all right? He, he, he brings us to, to this idea that though our hope is in the future, uh, though, though we are, who we are transcends where we are, the reality is that life still inevitably gets tough sometimes. It gets tough, and, and it can be difficult. And, and in, in those moments where trials persist, we need some perspective. We need perspective. And friends, that, that's what Peter's going to do, I'm convinced, for us today as we read. He, he acknowledges our trials, but even more than that, he teaches us not simply to, to endure, but instead to actually remain joy-filled even when our faith is under fire. To remain joy-filled when our faith is under fire. See, the athlete can, can find joy in suffering through two-a-days because they love the game. They love the game. Peter's going to say to us, you too can have joy in suffering. Why? <laughs> well, let me show you as we open God's inerrant and infallible word together. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, and I invite you to follow along as I read. Peter says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Now, what Peter says first here in verse 6 is he says, in this you rejoice. And, and the first thing we need to do is to, to try to discern what does this refer to. And, and I'm convinced that it refers to the entirety of the, the first five verses of First Peter. The, the rejoicing comes from recognizing hope and exile. But then Peter turns. And, and see, yes, we, we rejoice in hope, and yet... Trials remain. And, and so he says, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You have hope, but here's the reality. You still have some hard things going on. Now, now what does Peter mean by the word trial here? That, that too is important. See, although Peter's going to speak more generally of suffering later in the letter, the, the word for trial and the word for suffering are not the same thing, okay? They're, they're two different words. And, and the word for trial is the Greek word per, uh, periasmos. And, and it's often translated also as temptation or, or as testing. It's like when Jesus was teaching the disciples to pray in Matthew 6, 13, he, he said, and lead us not into temptation, periasmos, but deliver us from evil, Okay? And see, the trials of which Peter speaks here are, are those that, that specifically tempt us to doubt our faith, that, that seek to pull us away from God's 
provision. Now, I, Howard Marshall, captures it well. He says, temptation can take the form of pleasure in doing something that is forbidden, like what Adam and Eve did, yielding to the desired uh, forbidden fruit. But it can also entice us to do something to avoid painful consequences. And so he says, in persecution, the devil entices us to give up our faith for fear of suffering ridicule or, or physical harm of some kind. Peter has this attack in mind, and and later he refers to it as a fiery trial. I wonder this morning if we polled each other, and and we're not going to do that. We already kind of did that in our Thanksgiving. But but if we polled each other, what kind of trials are you facing today? Anybody facing a trial today? A challenge to your faith? Is your physical pain or or your health problems tempting you to, to doubt the Lord's provision? Is your difficult marriage making you rethink your relationship with God? Is your faith in crisis such that you're tempted to redefine morality according to your experience rather than according to God's Word? These are the trials of which Peter speaks and more. How do you remain joy-filled when your faith is under fire? Well, Peter implies first, first, you've got to keep your trials in perspective. You need to keep your trials in perspective. You you must have a perspective that allows you to understand how your trials fit into the context of God's greater work. And and there are several things that help us to do that. I'm going to argue that Peter, right here in this text, gives us at least five. Okay, He gives us at least five. And and so I want to bring you back to the text. First, look again at verse 6. Peter writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And the first thing I want you to notice here is that Peter says, though now for a little while. What does that tell us? Church, though your trial may be lingering for what feels like an eternity, The kingdom perspective that Peter invites us into is that uh, the reality is your your trial is temporary. It's not going to last forever. If you're in Christ, uh, that trial will give way to something better. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, he said, heaven and earth are going to pass away, but my words will not pass away. Church, this world as we know it is not the end. (laughs) Praise God for that. It's temporary. God's kingdom endures. His word endures. And so, though it matters what happens to us in this world, it really does. It doesn't last. See, God is busy shaping us for something greater. And in the scope of eternity, our trials are but moments in this grand and glorious space that we can't even begin to fathom. Friends, I know some of you are facing some very hard trials right now, some things that are very difficult, painful, maybe even miserable. And I'm sorry. I really am. And I'm convinced the Lord's heart goes out to you. But the first thing you need to remember, not the only thing, mind you, but the first thing, is that your trials are temporary. They're not going to last. I promise you, based on God's Word, you will not suffer forever. But not only are they temporary, look look again at verse 6. Peter writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. 
And the other thing that we can observe here, the other perspective we can have, is that uh, various trials, also translated all kinds of trials, are, are, are on display throughout the people of God. And, and here's the thing, your trials are different than my trials. Our, our trials are varied, okay? We all have unique things that we're working through. They're, they're unique. And, and, and some of us might be tempted this morning to look around the room or maybe to hear those Thanksgiving uh, prayer requests and to say, well, well, how come my life isn't like that? I, I don't really feel like giving thanks for, for my, you know, my, my family because we're a mess right now. I don't really feel like giving thanks for the situation I'm in, my job or whatever, because I'm frustrated. And you look at the person to your right, you look at the person to your left, you person look, at, look at the person up here or behind you, don't look at them right now, they'll feel weird, all right? But, but here's the thing, we, we say, well, why can't my life be like them? Why can't my problems be their problems and I can have their stuff? Man, what they're going through is easy. Why doesn't it work like that? Can I, can I be honest with you? I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I mean, it's possible that God is meaning to teach you something very specific to your situation because of your trial. Maybe that's even probable. But I can't tell you exact, I cannot tell you exactly what that is. Sometimes it's a mystery. And frankly, if, if you're the one going through the unique trial, it just doesn't feel very fair, does it? And I want to acknowledge that this morning, but I, I heard uh, Dr. Tim Keller share a perspective that I found helpful actually this week, and I want to share it with you. And he, and he said it like this. He said, you know, suppose a, a six-year-old is in a family and they have to move across the country, okay? And, and that six-year-old has to leave uh, her family, to leave her friends, everybody behind except maybe mom and dad and a sibling or two, and they end up in a new place. And, and for that six-year-old, the, the suffering is very real, isn't it? That's a real trial, okay? I've been that six-year-old. I'm here to testify. That can be hard right? And so they end up in this place. They don't understand it. All they know is I'm miserable. I hate this. Mom and dad, why did you do this? But then what happens? They, they grow up, right? And, and they maybe get into their 30s and they start to look back on that season of their life and they remember how hard it was, but they also have additional perspective. And so they, they, they might think back and they look and, and they say, oh, you know what? Actually, mom and dad had a really legitimate reason for moving us across the country. And, and now I understand that more. They might say, you know, if we hadn't moved, I wouldn't have gone to the high school that I went to. I, I wouldn't have become interested in the career path that I was interested in. I wouldn't have gone to the school that I went to for college. And so, so here I am. I'm married with these kids. This all would have been different if mom and dad hadn't moved us across the country. And they have a new perspective. doesn't mean that the trial wasn't real for them as a six-year-old. But, but they understand that God did something redemptive through that trial. Now, what Keller says that I find really helpful is he says, what makes us think that we're anything more than spiritual six-year-olds, <laughs> right? I mean, compared to God, when we really dive in and understand the glory, the majesty, the transcendent beauty and wisdom of the God of the universe, the God who created all things, what makes us think that we have any more perspective than a six-year-old compared to God? I find that helpful, friends. There'll come a day when everything that's now fuzzy is going to come into focus. I'm not saying we're going to be omniscient. I don't think that'll happen. That's, that's an attribute that God will retain. When I say omniscient, I mean all-knowing. Okay? God will still be God. We won't be. But I'm convinced that there'll be a perspective that we'll have about the trials that we've endured in this life. And we'll say, okay, God, that was hard, but it was good. Thank you. Thank you for walking with me through that time.
Friends, your, your trial is unique. It is. And by human standards, it may mean that it's more difficult than somebody else's. I'm, I'm so sorry. And, and frankly, we're, we're here to help walk with you through that trial as a church body. We, we care about you. But I'm convinced that God's perspective is going to be yours someday. And so I think with Peter, I would, I would challenge you, keep your trial in that greater perspective. Now, to remain joy-filled when your faith is under fire, you must remember that your trial is temporary, that, that your trial is unique, but not only that. Okay? You need to also accept that it is, in fact, grievous. Not like general grievous, right? <laughs> But, but it's specifically grievous to, to your situation. I don't even know where General Grievous exists. That's somewhere way back here, all right? But uh, uh, if you know General Grievous, tell me later, all right? Maybe that's an inappropriate thing to say. <laughs> Peter says you've been grieved by various trials. And see, I, I think one of the great mistakes that, that Christians often make is to minimize their pain, to say, you know what, things aren't, aren't really that hard. They, they pretend that somehow they're not struggling. See, many of us think that a good Christian ought not have problems. We, we need to be happy all the time. We need to be carefree, go lucky. That's what God would have for me. And, and if we're ever blue or we're disappointed or we're angry, that, that somehow we're not living up to God's righteous standard. But I find it fascinating here. Peter doesn't villainize the grieving in this passage. In fact, he says, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And see, apparently, sometimes trials are necessary. We'll talk about that in a minute. But not only the trial, not, not just the trial, but also the grief associated with it. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Church, we need to acknowledge that. And Karen Jobes says, the joy of knowing one's ultimate eschatological future does not make the distress of one's current circumstances any less real or disquieting. Are you running around pretending like you never have any problems? Can I just encourage you? Take a breather. It's okay. You don't need to pretend. Not only are you in pretending, denying your own limitations, but, but you're projecting guilt to everybody else around you for grieving at their trials. Now, you may be truly joyful. Don't deny that. But when you have trouble, it's okay. Say, yeah, I think this grief is necessary. And perhaps it's even a part of what God is doing in my life to shape me at this time for such a time as this, whatever it is. And church, I'm not saying we need to run around moping all the time, right? That's easy to do. I think I've had seasons in my life where I've done that. And in fact, this message is really about how to remain joy-filled even when your faith is under fire. But it doesn't mean that we deny it when life becomes grievous, when it becomes tough. And so church, we must keep the perspective that our trials, they're temporary, they're unique, they're grievous, and then, as I mentioned already, they're also necessary. They're necessary. And, and, and some commentators vary in their treatment of that phrase, if necessary, in verse 6. I'm convinced that what Peter is implying is that trials, in general, are necessary. Just, just not all the time and in every situation. Not everything is a trial. Okay, Praise God for that. Amen? All right. 
But trials are a necessary part of what God does to shape us, to shape our perspective. I agree with Daniel Doriani, who says, Peter says that his people had to suffer. And he says this because suffering is a logical result of conversion. <laughs> it's the wake following behind salvation's boat. That speaks my language, all right? I like to be in a boat. Church, it was predictable because following God entails abandoning the gods whose worship was part of the glue that united Roman society. When you left the gods of Rome, you were going to be persecuted. That's the way it was. You were going to experience trial. It was foreseeable, says Doriani, because Christian morality clashed with pagan morality. That still happens, friends. That still happens. And we should expect it. If you're walking with Christ, if Jesus is your highest priority, you're going to suffer from all kinds of angles. It's going to happen. Peter says it's necessary. And either you're going to suffer from the hands of people who adhere to a competing morality, or you're going to suffer from the initiative of the evil one, who always opposes that which God ordains. That's part of the deal. And see, as, as suffering is a necessary part of the, the two-a-day process that shapes an athlete for the season, so also trial is necessary for the sanctification process that shapes the Christian for God's kingdom. It's a necessary part of what God uses. P Peter says, we've got to remember, <laughs> our, our trials, they're, they're, they're temporary, praise God. They're unique, yes they are. They're grievous, of course, they're necessary. They're part of God's design. Now, does God create the, the, the suffering? I, I don't think so. God uses the suffering in His sovereignty. He, he does what is necessary to leverage that which the evil one intends for evil and turn it to good. That, that's, that's what God does. But church, uh, one more perspective. Look at verse 7. One more. It says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter says, you've been grieved by various trials, so that. Okay? So that. And see, church, praise God, our trials are not random. They're not haphazard. They're not, they're, not, they're not all of a sudden just, just showing up and pointless. They have meaning. They're purposeful in God's hands. And, and Peter says that we should expect various trials so that the tested genuineness of our faith may result in something. Okay? God is doing something through our trials. And what he's doing is he's producing faith that is two things. Okay? First, he's producing through trial a faith that is genuine. That is genuine. Trials put our faith to the test. Amen? They do. And as a result, we either pass or we don't. Either our faith is real and we move through the trial or, or we walk away and our faith proves false. <laughs> when I was younger in, in ministry, I was, I was something of an idealist and I think that's an understatement. Okay? And if things didn't go right in ministry and relationships, I'd get bent out of shape really easily. Negative feedback would send me spiraling downward. It would it'd eat my lunch, you know. And, and I'd easily feel persecuted. I'd pout, <laughs> frankly. But you know what happened? 
the Lord kept giving me those trials. <laughs> kept saying, Andy, I think you got more to learn there. And by God's grace, I, I had to keep coming back to, okay, what, what's really real in my life? Do I expect to, to be liked all the time? Do I expect to, to have things easy? Or do I expect a, a God who will be with me even in the midst of? And I'm convinced that, that the Lord uh, began to teach me that, that he was using some of that criticism, some of the things that, that it maybe was due me at, at that stage in my ministry to, to make me a better pastor, to make me more genuine, I think. Maybe, maybe the Lord used certain trials in my life as a younger person in ministry uh, to, to, to make it so that my faith isn't so easily shaken. I'm grateful for that. At, at this stage in my life, I think I'm still a six-year-old spiritually, but I'm grateful for, for the perspective. And if I'd have walked away in those moments, if I'd have said, God, this isn't worth it, then what kind of faith would have I had, right? Friends, trials are purposeful. They, they produce faith that, that is genuine, that is growing, that's been tested, refined. And so not only that, not only does, do, do trials produce faith that is genuine, they also produce a faith that is precious, <laughs> Peter describes that faith which is more precious than gold, though, though, it, though the gold perishes, though it's tested by fire. And church, all throughout the biblical narrative, as an, uh, gold and fire are, are joined together to demonstrate this refining process that God uses amongst his people. It, it's fire that burns away the impurity from the gold with which it coexists. It's often fire that fits people for holiness. And, and Peter acknowledges that as fire burns away the impurities of gold, so do trials refine a believer. And he calls this precious. Isn't that amazing? It's even more precious than gold. How's that? Well, see, though gold can be refined by fire, it can also be destroyed by it. Gold is a, a temporal thing. It's, it doesn't last forever. But genuine faith produces that which lasts, that which is eternal. We don't take gold with us into eternity. Amen? But we do take our faith. And in that, it's, it's precious. It's valuable. Church, the, the trials we face are purposeful. They, they produce faith in us that is both genuine and precious. And the result? Church, they, they result in God's glory and honor and praise at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Friends, Jesus is coming back. He's going to return, and, and when he does, God's refining work through our trials will come into perfect focus, I'm convinced. And, and at that, we'll, we'll lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus, and we'll give him praise and glory and, and the honor that is due him, not simply for the trials that he allowed us to endure, but also for what he produced through them. That precious faith that has been refined by the trials, we're going to have that, and we're going to be able to lay it as a crown at his feet and say, Lord, thank you. I see what you were doing there. And I didn't like it, I'm going to be honest. But I'm glad you did it. Because here I am. And here we are. And I know that you're good. And I can see that clearly now. Friends, to, to remain joy-filled when our faith is under fire, we must keep our trials in perspective. Now, briefly, I, I want to continue here in verse 8. 
And Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Church, remember Thomas, the disciple? Thomas was the disciple that didn't see Jesus at his initial appearance after his resurrection. And he, and he said, you know what? I'm not going to believe it until I get to touch his nail-scarred hands. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going there. Remember what Jesus said to Thomas? After he showed up and said, Thomas, here they are. Go ahead. Right? He, he said to him in John 20, verse 29, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And there's a tension here, isn't there? I mean, uh, we, we, see, we, we see something uh, going on that we have in common with those in the first century, in the dispersion, in exile there in Turkey. That They hadn't seen Jesus in person. They were too far away, most likely. And neither have we. And yet Peter's words here describe a people that though not able to see him, have no doubt about who Jesus is. And so Peter presses into that tension. Look, I know you haven't seen him, but here's what I'm observing about you. I want to affirm this. I'm not going to avoid it. Yes, you're in exile, but here's the thing. You believe though you haven't seen. You love though you haven't seen. How do you do that? (laughs) I think Peter's bringing them back to verse 3. Because you know the resurrection happened. You've talked to eyewitnesses. You know that Jesus got up out of that grave. And it's a verifiable fact. For sure in the first century, there's no denying it. Here today, we stand on the truth of the resurrection. We stand with Andy Stanley who says, when somebody predicts their own death and resurrection and pulls it off, we should go with whatever that person says. Friends, our faith is going to be tested. And when it is, press into it. Don't avoid it. Yeah, the reality is I haven't seen Jesus specifically with my own eyes. But I see evidence all around. I see evidence right here. This is the body of Christ. I see Jesus in you. (laughs) And I'm confident in who Jesus is because Jesus rose again. Finally, to to remain joy-filled when your faith is under fire, not only keep things in perspective, uh, not only press into the tension, but but you must do as Peter directs here in verses 8 and 9. Look at this. He says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Friends, we began this morning in verse 6, and what did we say? What did Peter say? He said, in this you rejoice. Now here in verse 8, he, he bookends this whole section with the same theme, and he, and he says to those who believe, rejoice with joy because your, your, your faith is being fulfilled. Uh, this is an inexpressible joy filled with glory because you are obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And, and see, church, to remain joy-filled when our faith is under fire, We need to keep trials in perspective. We must press into the tension and we can anticipate the triumph. We can anticipate the triumph when Jesus prepared his disciples in the upper room for his coming death and resurrection and glory. He said to them in John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. (laughs) Did that mean that the disciples weren't going to (laughs) suffer? No, they were in for a whole lot of trial. But Jesus prepared them. And he said, look, 
What I'm teaching you now, what I'm sharing with you now, is so that you can have joy even when your faith is under fire. And Jesus proved his ability to speak that into his disciples when he went to the cross, when he shed his blood for our sin, and when he rose up out of that grave in glory. He secured the victory not only for himself, but he secured it for all of us who've put our faith in Jesus. Church, our joy is made complete in Christ. So anticipate the triumph. (laughs) Joy, not suffering, wins the day. And what will be the final outcome? Well, listen again to verse 9. Peter writes, Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Church, a faith that endures is a genuine faith, and the outcome of that faith is salvation. It's salvation. And notice the grammar here. Often salvation is something we think about as purely a future event. But over and over in Scripture, we find that salvation isn't just for the future. It's also for now. Uh, Peter writes, obtaining the the outcome of your faith, present tense. We're currently in the present obtaining the outcome of our faith, which is salvation. And see, we don't have to wait for joy. It can be ours now. Not, Not a trivial joy. Not not a joy that pretends that trials don't exist, but a joy that is rooted in the saving work of Jesus Christ. Joy that is confident that though what I'm experiencing now is hard, that it is grievous, I know that it's temporary, and I know that the salvation of my souls will be made complete at one point in the future. And so I can see I've been saved, I'm being saved in joy, I will be saved in glory. That's what I hang my hat on, that's what I'm convinced of. And that's why I can have joy in the midst of trial. Friends, are are you suffering today? And in that, do you you lack joy? I invite you, keep, keep Peter's perspective. Your trials are temporary. And yes, they're unique. Yes, they're they're grievous, but remember. They're a necessary part of what God is doing to produce a faith in you that is both genuine and precious. And the result will be for the praise and the glory of Jesus Christ, but it will also be for your joy and your salvation. There's a woman named Becky Greer who suffered unspeakable loss. All four of her children died, three of them together and another at a different point. And she wrote about it on a card with a picture of a lily on the front. And and here's what the card said. She, She quotes her daughter, When the blooms die, plant it outside, Mom. That's exactly what the lady at the florist said to do, and and it'll come back next year, exclaimed my nine-year-old daughter, Cammie, as she proudly presented me with a a beautiful potted stargazer lily for Mother's Day. I told Cammie I, I didn't believe the lily would come back, but Mom, the lady said it would. When the blooms faded and died, Cammie kept reminding me to plant the lily outside, and I kept putting her off by saying, I just didn't believe the lily was going to come back. Cammie remained persistent and insistent until I finally relented, and together we went outside to plant the lily in the backyard. Winter came and the lily died. Cammie and two of her brothers also died that winter. My world became totally dark. 
The following spring, when the lily sprouted and grew to produce 27 fragrant pink blooms, I became filled with inexpressible joy. Joy in my darkness? How could that be? Without my children, I believed I could never feel joy or happiness again. What a beautiful gift. Cammie, an innocent child, had no trouble believing that the lily would live again. Jesus said we're to have the faith of a child. God can resurrect even those things which we believe can't be resurrected. I did not believe the lily could survive the darkness of winter, and I did not believe that I could survive the darkness of my grief and suffering after losing all four of my children. God was working on the lily in the darkness of the earth, and he was working on me in the darkness of my grief. I just didn't know it. Just because we don't always experience God's presence doesn't mean he isn't there. Friends, joy in my darkness. How how could that be? Friends, you too can know the joy of the Lord even in the midst of the most difficult trial. And I'm convinced that when we as the people of God keep our trials in perspective, when, when we press into the tension, when we anticipate the trial, we serve as the best witness to a watching world. See, the world doesn't really need to know how to do life when everything works out perfectly, do they? (laughs) They need to know what what does it look like to suffer and have faith and have joy. Praise God for the gift of salvation we have in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I I know on this uh, Thanksgiving weekend, there's some irony in what we've done here this morning. We've given you thanks for so many good things that are beautiful and rich and helpful. (laughs) And God, you have bestowed on us so many blessings, and for that we're thankful. But Lord, the the reality is, is that we also are facing trials of many and various kinds. And they're here for a little while. But as we understand, when you say a little while, sometimes a year is is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. And so our trials sometimes feel like an eternity, and yet we know they're not. We know that there is coming a day, Jesus, when you will return and when, when you'll make right all that is now wrong. And Lord, as we endure the trials that we have in front of us, God, would you give us the gift of perseverance? God, would you remind us that you're with us in those trials? And would you remind us of the hope that we have in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? That that when the tension comes, when things just don't quite seem to make sense, we rest not on on what we feel, although what we feel we, we bring to you, Lord. But we rest not on our feelings, but we rest in faith, knowing that because Jesus lives, so will I. Thank you, God, for meeting us here in our need for hope. Continue to teach us and guide us as we continue to work through this series in 1 Peter. And always, Lord, we love you and we trust you with these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.